Ruth chapter 3, 6 to 18. This is a little different sermon uh, than I've preached in the past simply because of the narrative. There's no real easy way to divide the narrative, so I can't just like preach four or five verses. It has to be preached kind of uh, in context. There's, if I break it up, it just it slows down the text and we miss the overall meaning of it. So this morning, uh, you'll notice on your outline that I put life application points. So as we're going through the text, we're going to look at life application points as we go through the text. I do have an outline, uh, not the one that's in the bulletin, that's just the points. Uh, but first we're going to look at Ruth's actions in verses 6 and 7. Now this is Ruth chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Now this took place in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where she says, take a bath, anoint yourself, Go down to the threshing floor, watch where Boaz lays down, uncover his feet, and then at that point, Boaz will tell you what to do. So this is really, uh, this is really the actual account of what happened based on that plan. Notice in verse 7, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now this word drunk is uh, it's called shatah, shatah in the Hebrew language. There's two possible translations here. One is it is a nafal verb which would suggest the idea of getting drunk. The second possible interpretation is that it is a qual verb which when you look at the original language, it is a qual verb. That refers to simply drinking. There is no doubt that this probably involved the consumption of wine based on what the text comes to. But Daniel Block makes a good observation here and I think he's right. No doubt Boaz was satisfied with the work he had accomplished this day, that is the harvest, but he probably was also feeling the effects of wine. But unlike Lot in Genesis 19, there is no reason to interpret this as a drunken stupor. In other words, uh, you could say it this way, that he was feeling good about his life, what he had done. And, and in fact, it says, and his heart was merry. The word heart is lave. We've looked at this word before in Hebrew. It refers to the inner person, the, the person inside, who you are as an individual. So inside, Boaz was feeling merry, yatav, or pleased. Um, Boaz was basically just in a good mood. He was in a good mood. And this brings me to the first life point. Life is to be enjoyed. I think a good case can be made throughout the Bible that life is to be enjoyed. The Apostle Paul says, At all times I rejoice in all things, and in all ways I rejoice. And the reason that he's able to rejoice is that Christ is his Redeemer. Listen, um, people have a, have a tendency to think that when you come to Jesus Christ by faith, that God somehow removes all avenues of having a good time or that you can't be joyful. 
Now, there are two extremes here. One is when uh, life is negative, negative, negative. And, and those types of people are missing out on the blessing of enjoying life. Life is to be enjoyed. But there's also the other end of that spectrum is that where everything is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week party, and there's no responsibility along with it. What I'm aiming for here is the middle ground where Boaz, by the text, Boaz has worked hard. He has done his diligence. He has gotten the harvest together. He simply sets aside time to enjoy his work. In fact, we're going through Ecclesiastes on Wednesday evenings. A person can do no better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This, too, I see from the hand of God. Listen, oftentimes we look at life through different prisms as we live. And I think the most important thing that we can do is love God, love others, and enjoy life. It doesn't mean that you can never laugh, you can never joke, you can... I, I just know people, I, and I've seen them. They go through life as if life is a negative draw. And you, when you come to Jesus Christ, and I've heard this from unbelievers, you come to Jesus Christ, God doesn't want you to have any fun. That is ridiculous. Do you know how many times the Bible mentions joy, laughter, all of these elements? A lot. Brothers and sisters, if you are not enjoying life, I feel sorry for you. Because God does not want us to be stick in the muds. It's okay to have fun. But I can also say on the other end, work hard, play hard. It's a good way of putting it. That's all Boaz is doing here. He's not getting drunk. He's just relaxed, and he is enjoying the fruits of his labor. Now, notice he says here that the writer of the text writes, he laid down near his grain. Why would he do that? We covered that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so they've done this harvest at night. They're doing the winnowing at night. They've, they've had a meal. And now you can't really move that grain until in the morning. So the obvious solution is you're going to lay down next to that grain so that you can protect it. So that in the morning you can move that grain. So simply... That is it. And then at that point, the moment of truth happens. Notice, and she uncovered his feet and lay down. That was part of the plan that Naomi had put forth. Let's see what happens. Boaz's reaction in verse 3, or in chapter 3, verse 8. At midnight... The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Uh, the word startled here refers to uh, not only surprise, but also contains the element of shivering. Um, and notice the text says, at midnight. So sometime between the time that Boaz uh, finished eating and drinking and was feeling satisfied and laid down, we don't know exactly what time that was. But between then and midnight, let's say 9 o'clock. So at this point, Boaz has probably been asleep about three hours. And if you've ever camped out and actually slept under the stars in cold weather, um, sometimes you get cold and you start to shiver and you wake up and start putting things on you. This is exactly what happened. Boaz wakes up and he turned over probably to 
cover his feet back up, but there was a woman at his feet. Remember, have to be mindful of the fact that during this time, sometimes uh, women who lacked morals would sometimes visit uh, at the harvest. Uh, and we'll leave it there. But now Ruth's, Ruth's answer is in 3.9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Startled. Logical question. It's dark, hard to see. Boaz wakes up and he goes, who are you? That's a logical question. Now notice how Ruth responds three different ways. She says, first of all, I am Ruth. Not that I am the Moabitess, not that I am the one that came back with Naomi from Moab, not any of that. She answers, I am Ruth. He would have readily identified who this was regardless of the uh, social designation with her. She just says, I am Ruth, your servant, Ama. That word means handmaiden and somebody who has been purchased. This is interesting. She is acknowledging here that Boaz has ownership over her. Now, when you think about this narrative in the context of the entire book, I said in one of the sermons a while back, what we see is Ruth being integrated into the nation of Israel. Here, it comes full circle. She is acknowledging the fact that she has now been brought in to the Israelites. And she's saying, I am your handmaid whom you own, and you are now becoming responsible for me. Now she goes on and she says, spread your wings. This is an idiom in Hebrew. The Israelites would have, would have known this, particularly the word wings, which I think is a reference to God. Any Israelite would say when you mention the word wings, it's, it's probably a reference to God. Um, and in fact, Exodus 19.4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. Ultimately, I think both Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth understand that God is at work in this situation. Secondly, this idiom refers to something else even more significant. It is a marriage proposal. So Naomi's plan, Naomi's plan was for her to go, and by the way, that was pretty interesting that she would go watch where he lays down and then uncover his feet when it's dark, knowing the type of environment that that could be misconstrued as. Uh, very interesting that she would possibly go this route, but when she adds, spread your wings over your servant. She is making a marriage proposal. Beyond that, 
the issue here is that she is asking for security. She is asking for security. And a lot of times, that's exactly what marriage is. It's a form of security. I think this is a good application point. Our security is found only in Christ. Do you not know that, in a sense, when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he becomes our husband. Actually, the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ, and the bride waits for the return of the groom, and he will come and get us. So in a sense, when Ruth here is proposing by telling him, please spread your wings over me, in a sense, Ruth's Redeemer is parallel to our Redeemer. He is the one who we enter into a relationship with, a permanent relationship. And therefore, as believers, our security is only found in Christ. It is found nowhere else. Not in a physical marriage, not in a job, not in this, that, or the other. Our security, first and foremost, lays in the fact that Jesus Christ redeemed us, paid for our sins, and adopts us into his family, whereby the Holy Spirit cries, Abba, Father. We are in the network with God. We are secure. One of my favorite passages about security, and I've read this at many a funeral, um, and it's just as good for us today. For I am convinced, this is the Apostle Paul writing, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Unlike the human institution of marriage, which, by the way, is a commitment for a lifetime, and it is only breakable by death, one partner dies or the other one does, the marriage that we have entered into is never broken in spite of death. Huge difference here. But Ruth is asking Boaz to please be my redeemer and so when we come to faith in jesus christ our security is found solely and only in him because he becomes our redeemer wow wow this next section boaz's reply comes with a blessing a promise and a complication now notice verse 10 And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Barak is the word for blessed, and it refers to being praised. So if we were to reword it this way and put it in this context, and he said... May you be praised by the Lord. In other words, Boaz is acknowledging the fact that her actions are godly. 
that these are not ungodly actions. And, and, and you know, you, 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 you think about this. This seems back, and I heard some scholars write this. I've seen their, seen their writings on this. This is kind of on the borderline of a risque type of plan. And I thought about that. Do you know the gospel started kind of that way? I want you to think about the plan God put in place. You have Mary, who had not known a man, and all of a sudden, she's impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Joseph was so concerned about it that he was going to put her away because it was scandalous. This is God's plan. This is the same plan that I see in the, in the, in the start of the gospel. It, it's not, and, and because of who we're dealing with, Boaz and Ruth, we know that, and we'll get into this in a minute, that they are godly people. Um, you have to acknowledge the fact that this is from God. Notice her character. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Ruth, no doubt, could have had the pick of the litter. She could have. She was young, from all accounts, pretty. She could have anybody. But what she's doing here is listening to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who, by the way, struggled initially, then got her feet spiritually grounded again and acknowledged the fact that God was in charge. And I believe in my heart as I've studied this, I believe this was the plan that God wanted. Those outside may say, well, it was kind of, you know, it's kind of dicey. And it's true, it was a little dicey. But when I look at the gospel and how it started, that was a little dicey too. Anyway, her character is very, very important. Now notice in verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. This is part of Boaz. This is the promise now. We've seen the blessing. He blesses her and says that God is praising you for your actions. And now the promise. And now, my daughter, do not fear. And if you're reading this for the first time, you get the sense of... <sighs> The plan is actually working. I will do for you all that you ask. Praise God. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The word worthy is hael, which means of noble character. And you notice he adds here, all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So, Boaz has given her a blessing. He's also said that Ruth is a woman of great character. You know what? I think that's a woman that any Christian man would want to marry. It's from Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is a crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like cancer in his bones. Yeah. I, yeah, you've got, a, you've got a woman that is godly, that is 
that is listening to her mother-in-law. She has not gone after the young men that may be handsome or, or even handsome and poor. Uh, she didn't do any of that. She's not looking at externals. She's looking at something different. She is a woman, I believe, who has embraced Yahweh as the Lord. And, and, she, and Boaz just acknowledges this. You didn't go after this young, nice-looking guy that, that was rich, and you didn't go after this young, nice-looking guy that was poor. You didn't do that. You did something else because the character is at point here. The character is at point. And by the way, I want to remind everybody in this church that beauty fades. And only that which is eternal has any significance in the life of a believer. So oftentimes we look at the external and we see the external and we go, wow, that looks good. You know, back in the day, I used to have a lot of hair. That hair is dried up. And I've noticed that things are different now. But I can tell you one thing that's not different. You know... Paul said we may be outwardly wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I'm so thankful Ruth did not look at externals here. But now, unfortunately, everything's going good. Boaz says, whatever you do, I will ask, I will, whatever you ask of me, I will do it. And looks like everything's good to go. And then all of a sudden the complication comes in in verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. You know what I see here? Surface, a surface level here. I see that Boaz is a man of integrity. You know what Boaz could have done? I will redeem you. He could have circumvented the process to get what he wanted. But what he did was show the heart of a person who has integrity. He said, wait a minute. It's true. I am a redeemer. But unfortunately, there is somebody that is closer than I that should be given first opportunity. You know... I think another thing that comes out here is that we are to live worthy lives. Ruth was a godly woman. Boaz was a godly man. Neither one of them wanted to do things their own way. That's been proven in this text. Boaz could have stacked the deck towards his end. Ruth could have gone after younger men. But they didn't do that. That speaks volumes. You know, this is our call. This is our call to live worthy lives. We've actually been told that in the New Testament. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Ephesians 4.1. The word worthy in this context 
means to act properly or that which is fitting to which we have been called. A call to salvation is simultaneously a call to sanctification. In other words, when we are called to salvation, we have also been called to live that salvation out for a world that needs to know who Jesus is. And here we see Boaz and Ruth exhibiting what, what would be in our realm the call to walk worthy. Everybody in town knew that Ruth was a worthy woman. They knew that she acted fittingly for a woman of Yahweh. And I got to tell us, we, we often forget, and I'm the first one to preach once saved, always saved. I believe that. I believe the Bible, not just I believe it, but the Bible says it. But beyond that, we are called then, in light of the fact that God has redeemed us, he has purchased us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light, who, who went to the cross to pay for the vulgarity of sin and the penalty of sin and then died on that cross, then was buried and rose on the third day and reigns at the right hand of the Father. I can't just passively look at that and go, thank you, but now I'm going to live how I want to live. I cannot do that. My conscience will not allow me to do that. And also the Holy Spirit inside of me cannot consciously allow that type of life so as believers when you get saved you are also in the process of sanctification and the call is a high one to live where i heard john MacArthur this week uh, i listened to his sermon I, I think it was last night and he was talking about this very thing that we have somehow forgotten our salvation because as we move further away from salvation, we're supposed to be getting deeper into the word so that we can allow the word to live through our lives and become more like Christ. And John MacArthur's point was simply this, that as people live their Christian lives, they forget the moment that God redeemed them from darkness and the dominion of Satan, and he's freed us. So you look at this, and you look at people here, Boaz and Ruth, who are living worthy lives. Now he goes on to add in verse 13, Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you, lie down until morning. Can you imagine Ruth now? There's a possibility that she may not be married to Boaz. Can you imagine the sleep process here? Tossing and turning and thinking about it, wondering who is this new redeemer? Um, I don't know anything about him. Maybe she's tossing and turning. Um, <laughs> but he makes, a, he makes an oath here. Look, look down in the verse. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, that is an oath. That is an oath. He says here, I am promising you that I will do this. 
there is nothing wrong with oaths as long as you obey them. And he's making an oath here. And there, in fact, there's oaths all through life. But here he says, as the Lord lived, I'm making an oath. I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So what we're left with, we're left hanging. We don't know the outcome. I know many of you do. You've already read it. You've been through it. But I'm trying to build suspense here. The morning send-off, 14 and 15. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known, let it not be known, that a woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz knew. He was concerned about her reputation. Even though this was a perfectly harmless meeting. He also understood that others might misinterpret her leaving. Isn't that the way it is about life? God puts you in a, in a, in a situation and then you have those that are in the bleachers examining misinterpreting your intentions. They sit on the sidelines and say, that looks bad, that looks bad, that looks bad, when in actuality it may be perfectly harmless and that God may be using that event. I think of Emmett when he told me, and I hope Emmett doesn't mind me bringing him up this morning. And if he does, he'll tell me about it as we leave church today. <laughs> Emmett had walked by a bar for quite a while. He, he walked by there. And one day, God told him to go into the bar, and I want you to witness to this man. You know what? Some, maybe even in this church, would misinterpret Emmett going into the bar. Do you know what happened? Emmett wound up leading that man to Christ. Based on something that Emmett, and I've known Emmett for several years. When, and when he's felt directed to do that, I won't judge it. And you could see how somebody would sit back and go, I wouldn't do that. Okay, maybe you wouldn't do it. But what if God told the person to do it? You don't know what they're in there doing. And by some accounts, it might look suspicious. But... If Emmett had not listened to God, would that person have come to saving faith in Christ? I don't know. Boaz understood the situation, and he says, I want you to get out of here so that nobody knows that you came here. I think this is important. Work hard at keeping a good reputation. I remember one day I was learning to drive and I was on the interstate and my mother was in the car with me and we were driving down the interstate and I passed a state trooper and I looked around like that and my mom says a person of integrity never has to look over their shoulder. In other words, 
live right and build your reputation. Did you know that that's in the Bible too? Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than riches. You look at all of the corrupt people that are in the world today. And I don't want to get too hard here because I know that there's wealthy Christians that are godly people. But when you think about people who have a lot of money, but yet they have horrible reputations. Or somebody in the community go, that guy, mm, he may not have a lot of money, but he has a bad reputation. When you have a bad reputation, it's not good. So I think Boaz here is trying to protect her good reputation. And again, I'd have to remind you about the gospel. That was God's plan. That's the way he planned it. Notice verse 15. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So obviously this is that outer garment that we talked about. So you could see her grabbing it like this and pulling the pulling from the bottom up to hold it out. Now notice what happens. And he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So a lot of scholars have debated what this meant because there's no measurement given. So let me give you some possible solutions and one of them is extremely hilarious. If this was six measures of ephah, we're talking about 180 to 300 pounds. <laughs> Hold out the garment. <laughs> Hold out the garment. If this was a shea, it would have been 60 to 130 pounds. Of course, same issue there. <clears throat> Trying to carry that home. <clears throat> I don't think Ruth could have handled that. Now, it could have been an omer. An omer would have roughly been 18 to 30 pounds, but I still think that's a little too much. I think it was probably six scoops. She held out the garment. She would have easily been able to carry that, wrapped it up like this, and gone home that he put on her, and she took off and left. So now we come the results of the scheme, 16 to 18. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. <laughs> I get the sense that Naomi You get that sense? She didn't say, How are you doing? She says, How did you fare? She has probably been on pens and needles probably most of the night looking out the window, seeing if she could see Ruth. And the first thing she says is, how do you fare? That's not actually the meaning of the text. This is a better way to say it. When our, our text says, how did you fare? The, the literal translation is, in what state or condition are you? 
in what state or condition are you? Are you single? Or are you getting married? Then there's an interesting note here. I was shocked about it, and I kind of did some research on it. And when she came to her mother-in-law, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. The man, all that the man had done for her. They've both used Boaz's name before. Why would they now say the man? Let me make a suggestion here. It was often the case when you were engaged that you would use the word man. All that the man had done. So when we get home, you can just start calling me the man. <laughs> the man who sometimes has a plan. Saying these six measures, verse 17, these six measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Why the gift? Why the gift? Three possibilities. I'll let you choose whichever one you want. First of all, Kingsman, a kinsman redeemer. It was his responsibility to take care of the one he redeems. Secondly, he could have been thanking Naomi for the plan. But thirdly, and I think a better option, is that he was making a good faith showing to say, I am taking care of the situation. You could say it was a promise that I will take care of the situation. So, verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you have learned the out, how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Wow. They both have to wait. Again, Daniel Block Again, this is not a resignation to chance or fate in the abstract. Totally agree with this. In the statement, we recognize a note of confidence in the hidden hand of God who will direct affairs to the proper conclusion. Let me say this to all of us today, including myself. Leave things in God's hands. There was a plan enacted here by Naomi. They carried the plan through to the letter. And now they're having to wait. And Naomi acknowledges the fact that we just have to wait and see how it goes. Sometimes in our lives we do whatever we can to change things or to do things. And then ultimately we have to do this. We have to leave the results in God's hands. It's tough to do, but you do everything that you can do in your life, and then you have to say, I give it over to God. I will let him do what he wants. And that's sometimes very hard to do because we like to change things, don't we? 
We like to change our situations. And you know what? Sometimes God lets us change our situations. Be careful what you change. Because not all change is good. I think, and I look in this week, I just think this is really good advice. Um, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. I don't know what you have going on in your life, but I can tell you this. Do everything that you can on your end, but ultimately you have to leave the results with God. We are in the God-trusting business. I have no idea what you've got going on in your life, but I can tell you this. Ultimately, take whatever it is on your plate or on your back and you transfer it to God and let God take care of it. I'll say this very confidently. You will never go wrong by waiting on God. You will never go wrong by allowing God to handle whatever situation that is in your life. You will not go wrong. But this is hard for us to accept sometimes because we want to change things. And Naomi points out here, okay, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. We've done all we can do. Now we wait. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that that was difficult. We learn in chapter 4 what unfolds from there. Let me ask you a question this morning. First of all, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Secondly, how are you doing on the walking worthy part? How are we doing on trusting God? How are we doing on waiting for God? I think it's so important from this text, obviously, um, that we're careful about what we do, what we say. That should be a given. But then ultimately, it all winds down to the fact that we've got to trust him with stuff. In fact, he's the best person to go to and just lay it with him and leave it with him. The most important thing is if you don't know Christ, to come to Christ. That's the most important. But secondly, from that, we've got to be people of integrity. We've got to walk worthy. doesn't mean we'll never fall or stumble or mess up or make mistakes or sin. doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we get up from that point and we keep moving forward. Nobody in this room is perfect. Nobody. But there's a big difference between one sin and multiple sins where you don't really even care. It's a big difference. So go out there this week. Try to live for him. Try to reflect the values of Christ to a world that needs to know him. And then live your life the best that you can 
in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in those moments when you're not sure what to do, give it to him. And I think that's a good, it's a good prayer.